Hello and welcome to the second episode of Interactive Investors' new podcast, The ETFs Show. In this episode, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the history of ETFs. For this, I'm joined by Mark Fitzgerald, Head of Product Specialism at Vanguard. So before getting into the history of ETFs themselves, we should probably cover the background history. So first, let's talk about stock market indices or indexes. When, why and how were they first created? Thanks, Tom. So it's actually probably a lot longer than most people would realise. They, they actually go back right to the to the 1800s, to the end of the sort of Victorian era. And if we take yourselves back then to the, to the late 1800s, they, they came about of, uh, as ways to measure economic and financial activity, actually through the work of journalists. And, and so very often, I think when people think of ETFs, they, they perhaps forget sometimes that their ETFs are funds. They're funds that trade like stocks on exchanges and they trade like shares. Now, most ETFs that we'll be familiar with, and indeed most that are offered, will track uh, well-known indices like the S&P 500 or the FTSE 100, for example. And some of these have been around decades. The S&P 500 goes back to the 50s. But prior to that, you had the Dow Jones, which was um, initially, it was only 12 securities. And it was it was like an industrial index, hence the name. Because if you think of the era, most of the large speculative companies of the time were railways. They were railroad companies, a bit like the internet companies of their age. Uh, and, and so journalists and economists were looking for ways to kind of monitor performance, financial market and economy, uh, economic performance. And the idea of, a, of an index came about, but of course they're very different to what we know now. So as I say, 12 stocks, mostly railroads, and it was the responsibility of a clerk <laughs> to manually calculate and compile the index returns and then put them in a newspaper. And so at what point and why did investors start thinking about no longer using these indices just as gauges or benchmarks, as you, as you mentioned, but instead as a potential portfolio to mirror? Actually, from an investor's perspective, I think you can break it down a couple of ways. You've got the retail investors, and for, for them, it's it's a relatively new thing. You've got institutional investors, and and for, for, for the large, sophisticated institutions and asset managers, its indices have really been popular over the last sort of 20, 20 years, 20, 30 years. But in terms of actually the concept of indices and what to do with them, that, that goes back really uh, to the 50s and the 60s, where computing power increased and it was possible to create much broader indices and to calculate them. In the, and a good example would be the S&P 500 and to do that initially weekly and then ultimately daily. And so what you could do then is capture a whole market. So you could say, okay, this is a representation of the US market, for argument's sake, or the, um, the UK market. And academics were then using that information to actually um, compare the performance of active managers to the performance of the overall stock market. And that's really where, you know, the, what tended to happen was, you know, the academics and the technology led, and then came the products, and then came the mass adoption by investors. Eventually, this leads to Jack Bogle creating the first commercially viable index fund and your own company, Vanguard, in the 1970s. Obviously, index funds are different than ETFs, but in many ways, index funds are the precursor to them. Could you give us an overview of this? Yeah, exactly. So you're right. In the 1970s, Jack Bogle um, created Vanguard. Uh, and so really, there were two, I guess, unique um, aspects to that. One was that the company was founded on the basis that the investors in the funds own the company. 
So there are no external shareholders in the traditional sense. Now, what that means is the company is able to focus on what's best for its investors because they own the company. Uh, and so there's a very direct alignment there of, of objectives. So the second thing was this idea of a retail index fund, in this case, based off of uh, based on the S&P 500. So this is in the mid-70s. Now, Bogle had actually studied uh, some of the academic literature that we, we talked about in the earlier question uh, in the 50s and 60s, and his own thesis had looked at how do you actually prove that active managers are adding value once you take account of costs? Well, the simple way is to give them a benchmark. Then the, the idea became, well, create a product that mirrors that benchmark, because if you can do that in a cost-effective way, that could well prove to be valuable for investors, a valuable tool to get performance of the stock market and, and avoid some of the pitfalls of poor performance in active managers. So it was created in the 70s, but it didn't take off at all well initially. And I think it stayed at its original $11 million for, for quite some time. Um, but as you get into the 1980s, uh, it starts to attract attention because of the performance and more people looking at this concept of benchmarking. And, and then it never really looked back. And the, the rest, as they say, is history. In the late 1980s, that ETFs themselves were invented in response to the big market crash of 1987. Could you explain this? You know, 87, if you, for those that were around or, or, you know, want to look back through the, through the literature, a large part of the blame for the stock market crash there, the rapid sell-off, was put on programmatic trading and some of the early algorithms. And out of the analysis, you know, the sort of the post-crash um, kind of research and evaluation, the SEC actually in, a, in the US, they actually kind of posed this idea or this, this, this challenge, if you like, to the investment industry of had there been a vehicle that would have enabled people to quickly and easily move positions and move blocks of shares together, maybe the um, the crash could have been in some way averted or maybe mitigated. And so out of that, you had a number of different parties working you know, roughly in parallel, looking at new structures. As you, you'll be well aware, financial innovation is, is ongoing all the time. So there's always people looking for new things. And out of that kind of that idea came this concept that could you create a vehicle that could be traded um, would be in a fund structure. So you've got the regulatory protection that you get with a mutual fund. But could you create a vehicle that you would enable investors to move their positions in one trade? So the S&P 500, again, would be an obvious example. I can place one trade and I've effectively moved my exposure in 500 companies. And I can do that on an exchange whenever I wish to throughout the day. So it was that kind of desire to create more flexibility and ease of moving positions um, to hopefully avoid some of the problems that led up to the, the 87 crash. And so at what point did ETF start to become available to retail investors, both in the US and UK? You have to go back really to the to the, the 90s, the early 90s, actually, uh, in the US and in Canada, there were some some early examples of, uh, of, of ETFs being made available. But real retail adoption actually starts quite a bit later than that. So the, the industry in Europe is a few years behind uh, in terms of its progression than the US. So really, ETFs have taken off in the last 20 years in Europe, but really the last 10 to 15 
In the US, it's been a little bit longer, but also you, you have to think that in the US, there's a slightly different investing culture. Uh, historically, investors have taken a more hands-on approach to their retirement investing because historically, the US hasn't had the social security net that, that we have been become used to in Europe. So there's there's slightly different sort of structural reasons why they took off a bit quicker in the US and why actually approximately half of all the investments in ETFs in the States are in retail, they're retail investors. And we're seeing greater adoption in Europe and the UK, um, but we're just lagging slightly uh, what we've seen in the US. So you talked about the last 20 years, they've become much more popular in, in uh, Europe and the UK. A big date often given for development ETFs is the 2008 crash. It's often argued that since then, uh, ETFs and other passive products have seen a huge growth in AUM, partly due to a kind of a more negative perception of of active managers. Uh, I was wondering if you walk us through what, what pushed investor money to ETFs post-2008. Yeah, I think 2008 is a real inflection point. I was working in the industry then, and uh, it was very interesting because you'd have a similar narrative on the run-up to 2007, 2008 that we saw last year, where there was a lot in the active management community that was saying, well, wait till there's a correction or a crash. This, this fad in indexing will suffer when there's a downturn. Well, actually, what happened in 08, and again, what happened earlier this year, is actually the active management community struggled, in, often in, in, because of poor market timing or because of high fees. They struggled in the downturn. Now, this wasn't lost back in 2008 in some of the most sophisticated, largest investors. So some of the big sovereign wealth funds and large institutions who essentially looked at their returns and said, well, why am I paying all these active fees when I wasn't protected in a downturn? And you see from 08 onwards, this sort of trajectory of growth as this big shift of, of assets gets allocated into index and then and then into ETFs. And we've seen a compound average growth rate of about 15.5% in Europe every year for, for the last 10 to 15 years. So it's been incredible year on year on year. So it, just to put some numbers on that, if you go back to 2008, the total invested in ETFs in Europe, domicile in Europe, was around $175 billion, some, something like that. If you look at where we are now in, in August, we're over a trillion dollars. So it, it's become a truly huge market. And so you mentioned sovereign wealth funds. Is it correct to say as sovereign wealth funds led the kind of uptick or increased inflows into ETFs and other passive products post-2008? And since then, retail investors have been catching up? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think one of the things that it's it, it's often important to remember with an ETF is it's a democratic product. So what do we mean by that? You can freely see it trading um, throughout the day. With, with these days, people can use their smartphones. So you, you're not beholden to, to a, a newspaper to give you the, the, the share prices. You can get that live. And the price that a retail investor pays for an ETF is the same as, as a large institution. Now, what we've seen is, and you tend to see this, the more sophisticated institutions with the research capabilities and more financial nows tend to lead uh, the adoption of products. Um, but the great thing for retail investors is this is hugely beneficial because as more and more users use ETFs, they become more efficient to run because there are economies of scale. They become cheaper because there's more competition. And because they become cheaper, the performance impact of the price cuts is meaningful over time. So investors, retail investors are benefiting from the institutional usage 
and they're getting more choice, they're getting lower prices, and they're getting more and more efficiency in, in how you can get exposure to markets. Uh, and, and so in that way, if you or I go and buy an S&P 500 ETF or a FTSE 100 ETF, the OCF, the management fee, if you like, on that product over the year is exactly the same as if a, a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund buys the same product. And I would say or suggest that that is very rare in most walks of life, that the retail customer, particularly in finance, is paying the same price as, as a, a multi-billion uh, dollar <laughs> organization. With the history of ETFs behind us, what do you see as the big trends shaping the future of ETFs? Well, what we've seen this year is we've seen a, um, quite a shift into fixed income ETFs uh, as more users become more familiar with, with indexing in the fixed income space. Uh, we've Including one big user, the Federal Reserve, I guess. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And they've proven their worth. You know, they've done exactly what they're supposed to do in, in times of market stress is, you know, they provide a, a route to trading should you need to. Now, we would actually caution people not to market time and to to, to stick yeah. to their long-term plans. But so fixed income is an area we've seen increasing growth and we expect to consent, continue to see that. ESG is another one, which, you know, environmental, social governance topics, we're seeing a lot of new products there. Regulations are changing, regulations for asset managers, advisors, uh, and, and institutions in the ESG space. So this means over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, there'll be a lot more transparency required and a lot more emphasis on um, on the, the, the various components of ESG. Uh, and so we would expect to see continued growth in new products and, and assets in part sort of funneling into the ESG space. Um, but equally, we've seen continued flows into the core market building blocks, if you like, you know, the, the core indexing building blocks. Active ETFs is one that, that there has been some change and some growth where you put an active strategy into an ETF. But I think the latest figures suggest that there's around 200 billion, I think, in active ETFs globally. So then, you know, when you look at, uh, as I say, there's over a trillion dollars in ETFs in, in Europe alone uh, overall. Um, yeah. In the total global market, you're you're probably pushing six point six six point seven trillion dollars. So if you think back out of that six point six six point seven active ETFs being a couple of hundred billion, they're actually quite a small proportion. So I, I think yeah. to just recap, ESG fixed income um, will be an area that we see growth. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks, out Mark. That was very interesting, and thanks for listening, everyone. Hopefully now our listeners have a better understanding of ETF history, which should give them a better understanding of ETF products themselves and how to use them.